Judas ascended the stairs to the upper room, the sound of his steps muffled by a flurry of men's voices. The, the disciples were already engaged in their favorite argument, like children vying for candy on a plate. Each one of them were arguing who one day would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What fools, Judas thought. The future, it didn't belong to dreamers, but to men like himself. Men cunning and bold enough to act when the opportunity arose. Now, like many in Israel, Judas had fed himself with dreams of a Messiah, a new David who would one day liberate his people and establish his own kingdom. He had waited and waited and watched, impatient for the, the man, the Messiah, to reveal himself. Carefully, he had observed and sifted through these imposters, wanting to believe their impossible claims, but too shrewd to do so. But then, before cynicism had the chance to displace his hope, he found the one he was looking for. Jesus was a different kind of rabbi, speaking words that both soothed Judas and inflamed Judas, surprising words that continually threw him off his guard. He, he loved the way Jesus stood up to the religious elite, likening the Pharisees to these whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. But it wasn't only the words of Jesus that impressed Judas. It was the power. I mean, here was a man who healed the lame and made the blind see and even raised the dead to life. Judas had, had seen these things with his own eyes, and to serve such a man, he thought, would be to ensure one's own place in the coming kingdom. And Judas had become the group's treasurer, entrusted to administer the money that supported Jesus and his 12 disciples. Judas's hunger for action grew stronger and stronger as the crowds around Jesus grew larger and larger. There were men and women from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and even the other side of the Jordan who had gathered to follow Jesus. But instead of using his popularity to build this political movement strong enough to unseat the Romans, Jesus spoke to the crowds in incomprehensible ways. Judas just didn't understand. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Judas tried to take it all in, but he just couldn't stop wondering what kind of king would seek to build a kingdom. What, what kind of king would speak to his followers with these words. How could a great man's throne ever be established through talk of meekness and peacemaking? But besides power, Judas also had a fondness for money, as much money as he could get his hands on without drawing attention. And one day he became indignant, watching this woman pour perfume over Jesus's head, thinking 
only of what he could do with the money that perfume would have brought. He asked her, why this waste? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and been given to the poor. But Jesus stepped in in that moment and he chided him saying, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. Well, Judas, in that moment, felt betrayed. It wasn't, it wasn't only the public rebuke. It was all this talk about death. Had Judas misjudged Jesus? Thinking him a king when he was really just a religious dreamer? I mean, what good is popularity if the man knew nothing about leveraging it to achieve a political end? Judas was tired of, of waiting. He was tired of hearing the sermons that were clearly at odds with his view of how the world should change. Words were useless. Action is what was needed to provoke an uprising that would put an end to the Roman occupation of Judea. So, Judas concocted a scheme whereby he would betray Jesus to the high priests who promised him 30 pieces of silver as a reward for this treachery. So Judas watched, and he waited for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. If Jesus and his followers failed to act, if they failed to seize their moment of destiny, so be it. It was a risk Judas was willing to take. If he succeeded, a kingdom would be won. If not, eh. I'm a little bit richer. So that day in the upper room, as the rest of the 12 argued about who was greatest, Judas held his tongue. He was through playing such childish games. But during the Passover meal, Jesus said something that astonished the disciples and sent a chill through the man who was scheming against him. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Shortly after that, Jesus dipped a piece of bread into a dish and offered it to Judas. Ignoring the plea in Jesus' eyes, Judas stretched out his hand, and at that moment, the last of his doubts about his plans had vanished. Jesus leaned over and said, what you're about to do, do quickly. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread... He went out, and it was night. Currently, our church sign says, our mistakes are our greatest opportunity for learning. Uh, I don't know who said it, but I liked it, so we put it on the sign. But there's also another uh, widely misattributed uh, old adage. It, I was trying to find the source, and it's been given to everybody from Elizabeth Roosevelt to Henry Ford, maybe. I, I don't remember. But anyway, it goes like this. You must learn from the mistakes of others. You can't possibly live long enough to make all of them yourself. And so the premise of this is that you determine your desired outcome, right? You look at, you weigh out the odds, you see what's uh, happening, and you use best practices. One of the things I love about the Bible, and I've said it before, I'll probably say it a million other times, 
is that it not only includes the successes of the stories uh, whose stories it tells, but but it also tells the failures. And and I think if you read other ancient uh, narratives uh, from other cultures, they only record the victories, uh, the the wars. Uh, They only talk about the wins, or they rewrite history to make it sound like they won when everybody else knows they didn't. Nobody wants to expose their weaknesses or their mistakes, but the Bible never shies away from that, and I love it. So as we launch this, it's a short series we're calling Those Who Walked With Him. We want to tell those stories. We want to tell the stories of those who breathed the same air as Jesus, whose bodies were covered by the dust kicked up by his sandals, the ones who had the opportunity to lean in and listen closely, watch the miracles, teachings. But at the same time, we don't want to gloss over uh, the mistakes and the failures and the ugly moments and the outright betrayals. So admittedly, when you're talking about the people who walked with Jesus, Judas Iscariot is not the normal place to begin. Uh, He is introduced early in the Gospels um, as, as one of the first disciples, But it's always, always with this addendum. It says, Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. He is marked out clearly and quickly so that before you ever begin the story, you know this is the dude that betrayed Jesus. We don't really know a whole lot about Judas's life, his upbringing. Uh, Most likely, his surname Iscariot has more to do with where he's from a little village in southern Judea. Uh, We know that he was the treasurer of the group. And I don't know about you, but I have a guess that you probably picture him much like I do. When I think of Judas, I think of this squirrely little guy uh, just kind of standing over in the corner, you know, uh, black uh, outfit from head to toe, uh, slimy, like just always conniving, right? And to be... I mean, to be honest, that's how we portray him in film and in church plays and those kinds of things. He's just a bad dude. But I wonder if it's not a little bit unfair. And here's why. We're going to look today at John chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 21. And you can follow along. It'll be on the screen, or it'll, you can find it in your Bible or your, uh, electronic device. But the disciples are gathered in the upper room. This is the final week of Jesus, the final couple of days of Jesus, and they're celebrating the Passover feast, a hugely important feast for Jewish people. Um, and so Jesus is there, he's talking to them at length, and then he speaks again. And this is what John writes, starting in verse 21. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, hey, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he said, Lord, who's it going to be? And so this is why I think we're uncharacteristic. We're just, I don't know, we maybe misrepresent Judas a little bit. And here's why. I don't know if you caught it, but Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. 
And they all started looking around the room going, who's it going to be? They didn't immediately go, Judas, right? And and here's the thing. If you had a family reunion today or you got together with a decent-sized group of friends and somebody just spoke up and said, hey, who among among us do you think is most likely to get slapped for being sassy? Or which one of us do you think has the highest chance of going to jail? You, you know. I mean, you know who to look at because, because we know. We kind of get to know people. But here, it doesn't happen that way. Not, not in the upper room. No one is giving the stank eye to Judas. Then it continues. Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it into the dish. Then... Dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what he needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. So yeah, Judas failed, and he did it spectacularly. Even now, more than two millennia later, uh, nobody, Christian or non-Christian, nobody wants to be labeled a Judas, because we all know what it means. He is a betrayer. But then I go back, and I think through the Gospels, uh, through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and and I think about Judas, and I recall Judas was there from the beginning. I mean, he was right there with the 12 from the earliest days because Jesus called him. In those three years of walking with Jesus, Judas heard all the sermons, probably multiple times. He attended all the services, he sang all the songs, Judas was there for all the times when Jesus pulled the disciples aside and said, hey, I need to explain this a little bit further because you guys seem a little confused. He was there. He was there to witness the miracles. He, He saw dead raised to life. He saw blind receiving sight. He saw crippled and weak walk and dance. He saw heartache and pain turned into joy and celebration. Judas was in the room. Jesus washed his feet. Judas was there in the upper room and ate the Passover meal at the table with the Passover lamb. He was there all along. Judas missed it. In his book, On the Anvil, Max Lucado makes this observation. He says, we we learn a timeless lesson from the betrayer. Satan's best tools of destruction are are not from outside the church. They're from within the church. A church will never die from the immorality in Hollywood or the corruption in Washington, but it will die from corrosion from within, from those who bear the name of Jesus but have never met him 
and from those who have religion but no relationship. I think that bears repeating. The church will die from corrosion from within, from those who bear the name of Jesus but have never met him, from those who have religion but no relationship. Judas could have checked all the boxes. I mean, he looked the part, sounded like he was on the same page. He said and he did the right things. He wore the cloak of religion, but he missed the heart of Jesus. But you and I, we're really no different. I think we should be far slower at casting stones in Judas' direction and consider whether or not we have also fallen into the same trap of knowing the Savior but missing his heart. Because let's face it, we are tempted to equate a relationship with Jesus with the number of services we attend each year or the number of times we study our Bibles. I mean, you can leave an indentation on that seat from all the hours of attendance and forget that the purpose of a worship service is to equip us not to come and sit, but to go and tell. We can, like Judas, witness the wonderful and majestic things that Jesus does in the lives and hearts of people around us and miss the call on our own lives to experience that grace as well. And we can, we can like Judas, put our trust in Jesus to make our government right and miss that Jesus has a far greater kingdom, a kingdom without borders in mind. We can, like Judas, imagine that our lives depend on us taking action, all the while missing this truth that if Jesus isn't in it, neither should you. We can, like Judas, say and do all the right things, be in all the right places, follow all the right rules, and find ourselves following ourselves and looking around and not seeing Jesus anywhere. Friends, if we're not careful, we too will wear the cloak of religion and miss the very heart of the one we proclaim. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can learn from the example of Judas. So don't settle. Don't settle for uh, the mirage of religion and miss out on the great riches of knowing Jesus and having a meaningful relationship with him. You know, I, I look at the story of Judas, and it has to be one of the saddest accounts throughout Scripture. Here we have a man chosen by Jesus to be part of the inner circle, seeing firsthand the wisdom and the power and the love of Jesus. And whatever his motivation for betrayal, be it money, power, trying to speed things along for a political overthrow, regardless of any of that, we know that he quickly came to regret his decision. We don't know exactly when, but he, he returned to the high priest's he returned to the Jewish leaders to throw back the 30 pieces of silver he was paid, wishing so badly he could undo what had already been done. But Judas, he had become so disconnected from the others 
Nobody ran after him. So he alone decided for himself that there was no hope, and he took his own life. And that may be the most heartbreaking part of the story. Because Judas was there. He saw the extensions of grace, the extensions of forgiveness when he was walking with Jesus. But when it came time, he didn't feel as if he was worthy to seek it for himself. And I mean, Peter, you think about the apostle Peter, he just a few hours after the betrayal, he denied that he even knew Jesus three times. But ultimately, he returned to the upper room and was received by the brothers and sisters gathered there and ultimately restored by Jesus after the resurrection. Peter offered himself in humble repentance, recognizing his sin, and he surrendered it before the Lord. And Jesus gladly received him. And I have, there is not a doubt in my mind that Judas would have received that same grace from Jesus if only he had turned to him. He wasn't any less valuable than any other Christ follower. Neither are you. He wasn't any less deserving of grace because none of us are. And we can find that grace through humble repentance. But I also see this story as a failure of a group of believers who neglected their responsibility of loving one another and holding one another accountable. The 11 missed an opportunity to restore a brother. They didn't seek him out. It makes you wonder, had they also lost sight of the mission to seek, to save, to restore the lost? That should be a warning for us as well. You know, you make the decision to follow Christ as an individual, but the Christian life must lived, be lived out in connected community, loving one another, sharing life together, holding one another accountable. And so Judas's story is an account of a good man gone sour, an honorable man becoming corrupt and selfish. And in this life, in the life of Judas, we see the dangers of living in isolation rather than in community. And we witness the tragedy of drowning in remorse rather than leaning into the cleansing power of humble repentance and falling into the forgiving arms of Jesus. These are powerful lessons. The great news is we don't have to learn them for ourselves. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. Uh, and I just... I want to say to you today, if you need to seek the Lord in humble repentance today, don't hesitate. There is no safer place to admit that you need grace than a room full of people who need grace. There's no safer place to seek the Lord because you're surrounded by people who Know that love. And so today, I'm just going to say as we stand and sing to, to come, if you have a decision to make, we invite you to come forward. I'd be happy to pray with you. One of our elders or other staff members would be happy 
to pray with you. But first, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as much as I, and as much as I don't want to admit it, I'm Judas. I have failed you. I have misrepresented your mission at times. Sometimes I find myself realizing that I have simply just missed the point. So today, in this moment, I pray that you would give us clarity. Give us the humility that we need. May we approach you in this moment with the humility that Christ had, that he was willing to give himself up, to lay down his entire being, to be raised up on the cross, to be our sacrifice for our sin. The ultimate act of love. So Father, I pray that in this moment, we would trust your grace we would approach you in humble repentance. And Lord, that we would live faithfully, live out your calling on our lives to love, to seek, to restore, and to serve. Because you have done all of that for us. Father, we thank you for the hope and for the grace you've shown us in Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.